Well, isn't it uh, it's great just to be able to hear the things going on in the Hope Center, and we're so happy to be able to, um, and humbled really, to be able to partner with what's going on uh, with Marvin and Angie and their staff, and we are so thankful that we get to be a part of that. So thank them again one more time for, for what they do at the Hope Center and how we get to be able to, to serve them. Well, I'd like to, Corey mentioned, welcome uh, to all of you uh, that are here, whether you're here in the chapel or whether you are online. We say thank you for joining us here at Pleasant Valley. And if this is your first time, uh, you probably had a connection card that came in. And if you have some questions or just would like to let us know that you visited, you can, you can tear off that bottom portion of the communication card. You can leave it in the offering baskets in the back, or there'll be some of our uh, staff that'll be right at the back or in the chapel. Uh, you can give that to, to Pastor John as well. So uh, again, we're excited and thankful that you're here. And there's a couple of different groups of people in here uh, that I'd like to, uh, to recognize because we have a pretty awesome thing coming on uh, during this week. We have Eagle Lakes Camp is going to be here for uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, and there are going to be 300 kids swarming around outside, playing on rock walls, going down slip and slides, um, and all that, and then uh, being pointed to Jesus. So uh, I believe that they're in here. We've got the staff from Eagle Lakes that are here, and they're here at church this morning. So would you just uh, give them a thank you and welcome um, as they are here? And, and secondly, uh, we also have uh, some other, um, I guess, uh, crew members, if you will, middle school and high school students that actually said, hey, I would like to help out. I want to be a part of this. And so they're actually paying a little bit of money to come on and be a crew, part of the crew. So to our middle school and high school students that are serving this week, thank you guys so, so much. And we look forward to, yeah, thank them. And we look forward to uh, what we can do uh, and what's going to happen as we go through, through this week. Uh, well, I wonder how many of you have uh, seen or heard of the tortilla challenge? Okay, by, by the laughter that came out, some of you have, right? Like, for some of you that aren't aware, it's, it's, it's hilarious. Like, don't play this video when you're trying to be quiet because you'll just burst out laughing. But essentially, it's a couple of different people or a group of people, and they get the biggest tortilla they could, they could have or find, and they take a drink of water, but they don't drink the water. They keep it in their mouth, and then they'll do like maybe a rock, paper, scissors, or whatever to, to see who goes first. But then they take turns smacking each other across the face with their tortilla, right? Like, I don't know who invents this kind of stuff, right? Uh, smacking each other across the face with their tortilla, and then the person who has keeps the water in, actually wins because inevitably everybody just spews water everywhere. And so you have these smacking back and forth and then, you know, you have pieces of tortilla flying around. You see dogs going to grab it and say, thanks for the food. And, but it's, it's just hilarious. And I bring that up because we're going to talk a little bit about, about something that all of us probably in some way struggle with. Uh, when, when I in student ministry, one of the things that we had is we had a no prank rule, okay? And it wasn't because we didn't want people to have fun, but the minute that you went and put a water balloon in somebody else's bed, and then when they laid on it, it, it exploded, well, then that person that had the prank done to them was like, I'm going to get them back. They're going to have a water balloon, and I'm going to cover the bed in like baby powder so it gets wet, and they just have all the stuff all over them. So it just keeps one-upping all the way through, and so it just never, it never stops because you got to have the last word, Right? I even saw this principle played out um, yesterday. We were at a, a family reunion on my wife Stacy's side, 
And so I had, uh, was eating lunch, and my granddaughter, Aubrey, my new grandson, Riker, were right there. And I don't know what happened. I think Riker, you know, poked her, whatever. And just like any really tough sixth grade or six-year-old girl could do, she turns around with her fist and said, I'm going to get you back for that. And, and I was laughing, but it's like, like you, we don't like to have you know, someone get the best of us, right? Like we, we want to be the one uh, that wins whenever any of that begins to come. That desire to re- retaliate or the desire to right a wrong is hardwired in all of us. And we all have a desire for fair and for justice to be upheld, right? But what happens when it isn't a fun game with a tortilla, but you're insulted because of your faith in Jesus? Or what do you do when everything in you wants to get payback because someone offended you? Or when you decide you aren't going to just get mad about it anymore, you're going to get even. You know, like that phrase, like, I'm not going to get mad, I'm going to get even. I mean, Aerosmith even had a song that was that was the exact title. But it never stops. It never stops with just one response back, right? I mean, we continue to one-up the previous response so that we can, we can have what I would call the proverbial last word. And there has to be a different way, right? I mean, we spent a lot of time this year making our way through um, really the greatest sermon ever given that uh, Jesus gave in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in the past few weeks, we've looked at what Jesus says about our anger, what Jesus says uh, about our sexuality, what he says about our, our sexual integrity, and then last week we looked at what Jesus says about divorce. And today is challenging in that we have probably heard variations of what the scriptures address in today's passage. And it's going to be easy to kind of check out or to form our own opinions. Like, hey, I've heard that before, but I'd encourage you just like, hey, lean in here just a little bit. Because I think Jesus has something here for every single one of us that's challenging. And remember that uh, that in this passage found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42... Uh, Jesus is speaking to followers or, or believers, and uh, he is continuing his overall theme of teaching us what is living and loving in the kingdom look like. And kingdom living people are called to live like this, is what Jesus says. Now, if you, like, well, who are those? I think I remember kind of like, well, who are, or what does kingdom living mean, and who are these kingdom people? Well, we have said that kingdom people are people who really know God. And they have character qualities and they make certain moral decisions that are based upon the fact that they are fully in the kingdom and they desire to live in a way that the kingdom is in them. And they aren't trying to gain more of God's love or his affection based on the decisions that they make. But instead, they're making decisions that are rooted in the reality of knowing that God is completely loving him, loving them. And they desire to fall follow him, follow God fully, whatever that looks like. And so last week, Pastor Merle um, started us and prepped us well for the text with a few questions regarding Jesus. And I'm going to repeat a couple of those here this morning because I think it helps us prime to hear uh, God's word. We want to dismiss it and say, well, Jesus said this, so this is what we said, right? So you, you guys can feel free to respond back to me, but do we believe Jesus was smart and knew what he was talking about? Yes. Do we believe that Jesus has our best interest in mind? Yes. And do we believe that Jesus is misinformed when it comes to determining what is true, what is righteous, 
and what is good? No. So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. He says, Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, maybe you can visualize this a little bit. Like, while Jesus is teaching, he reminds them of the laws they've heard. They, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I, I know that, Jesus. And I would imagine that, yeah, their, their heads are nodding and affirmatively in the audience. And, and they say, yes, I, I remember that. Well, what is this law that Jesus refers to? What is that? Well, Jesus is referring to what is known as lex talionis, or the law of retribution or retaliation. And that's found multiple places in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24, and in Deuteronomy 19, as we see here. These are instructions that God is giving in a way to kind of rule. So do not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. See, this law was given by God as the standard to administer justice in the civil law system. And it was actually meant to protect the offender against an overzealous judge who uh, wanted to uh, maybe give them a more harsh punishment than was deserved. And it was also meant to protect the offended by a judge who was feeling overly gracious on a particular day and let somebody get off with just a slap on the wrist. I mean, have you ever heard, heard this, the, the phrase spoken by someone after a court hearing that says, man, the punishment didn't fit the crime there. Well, this law was meant to eliminate those feelings and to serve justice in as righteous a way as possible. And so this law of retaliation was only meant to be used in those civil cases or as a standard an impartial judge would use to rule. But the Pharisees had evidently extended this principle from the courts of law, which is where it belonged, to the personal relationships we have, which is not where it belongs. And so they, they tried to use this to justify personal revenge, although the law itself explicitly forbids this. Look at, again in Leviticus 19. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Like, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Now, Jesus didn't contradict the law here. He didn't contradict the law of retribution. He just reminds us that it belongs in the courts and not our personal relationships. And so over time, though, this law was used as justification for people to take the law into their own hands and exact payment or punishment in their personal relationships. And of course, we notice what happens then, right? Just like the examples I gave, like, well, I'm going to get you back, or I'm going to get you back, and I'm going to get you back, and, and it keeps escalating. This was pretty common. So Jesus uses this. He uses the beginnings, like, hey, yeah, I know what you're talking about, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, to get everyone to lean in. And then Jesus does what only Jesus can do, and what he does throughout the Gospels, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, he turns it upside down, okay? So look again back at verse uh, 39. Um, 
You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, but I say, do not resist an evil person, okay? But I say, so Jesus states what they know, and, but I say, do not resist an evil person, okay? He says, but I say, that's the key thing, this is, Jesus says this, so pay attention. I say something that might be different, and it says, do not resist an evil person. Okay, do not resist an evil person. Well, who is this? Clarify, who and what is Jesus saying to not resist? It's like, it's, he says an evil person, but elsewhere in Scripture, we're constantly encouraged to resist the devil, right? Paul, Peter, and James, in their letters, they're all saying something about to oppose the evil one and to oppose all the powers of evil that are at his disposal. So obviously, when Jesus says this, says not to resist the evil one, it is not contradicting what we read in other parts of Scripture. Remember, last week, Pastor Merle said one of the very important things to remember when you get to Scripture is like you interpret Scripture with other Scripture, okay? Like, how does this Scripture, like, I don't get it. Well, let's look at other places of where this kind of thing is, is done. So without doing like a really deep dive into like the original language or anything like that, what we're forbidden to resist is not the evil one, not, not the devil, but the one who is evil, or maybe an easier way to understand it, the man who wrongs you. Jesus says, don't resist the man who wrongs you. And we don't deny that that person is evil, and Jesus doesn't ask us to pretend that he's not, and he doesn't ask us to condone or affirm his behavior. But what he is saying, he's saying, he doesn't allow us to retaliate against him. Like, yes, I know he's evil. I know you're not condoning. I know you're not doing this, but you still can't retaliate. He's saying, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Well, then Jesus uses four different statements as illustrations here. And this is where things get a little tense for each of us. I mean, I imagine they did then, and I think they do now, because it's like, really, Jesus, do you really mean all evil people? And do you really mean to not resist? I mean, can we resist just a little bit, but not like, you know, full-throated resistance? Well, before we get there, let's look at each one of these. The first one is there in the second part of Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. You maybe have heard this phrase, turn the other cheek, okay? If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek also. Now, one of the most offensive things, or maybe the most offensive thing in this culture, was to be slapped. Okay, not just any kind of slap, but the, the slap using the back of your hand against someone else's cheek. That's, that, is, um, uh, that is extremely offensive. And so, I, but I don't think Jesus was only talking about the physical attack of slapping someone. I think he's also talking about the insult that that slap represents, okay? So today we talk about something offensive being like, well, that was like a slap in the face to me. And we, we throw that. We know kind of what that means. Like a slap, when you slap someone like this, you were insinuating that that person had so deeply insulted and offended you that you held them in deep contempt, and it was shown with a backhanded slap. I mean, let's face it, guys, like, 
Someone slapping us, that really gets our insides boiling, right? There's something very offensive. Like, if you want to hit me in the jaw, go for it. But don't slap me on the face. But Jesus is implying that to live as kingdom people, to live as kingdom people, we're called to not respond when we're insulted, but instead to show that we are Jesus followers by the way that we bear that hatred and the way that we bear those insults. That's tough, right? Jesus calls us to swallow, swallow our pride and desire that we have to get even. And we give up what we think is our felt right to fairness. Now, the second illustration that Jesus gives us in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 5, and you've heard it maybe said like this, give the shirt off your back. This is if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Like some of your versions may say, give your cloak too. Now, in that day, you could sue others for the very shirt off their backs. Now, what you usually had is you had like an undergarment, like a t-shirt that you had, and then you had a cloak or a coat, a, a cloak or a coat around that, and a cloak, and can't even talk this morning. The coat, though, was absolutely vital to being able to live. And why is that? Well, it was what you used as bedding, and it was what you used to keep warm. So if you lost your coat in court, your opponent actually had to return it to you every evening for sleeping purposes. Okay? This would have been, this would have been known by Jesus' hearers, though. In Exodus 22, look what it says here. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. Which else? What else shall he sleep in? What else should he sleep in? Now, Jesus has given a really radical example here of how to respond. He's saying that as you are sued, and by the way, most likely it'll be falsely sued or accused, He's saying, uh, for your shirt, and you lose that case, well, give them the coat as well, even though that they have no legal grounds to do so. Now, Jesus is not, he's not advocating for partial nudity here, okay? That's not what he's advocating for. But today, in our context, this doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, at the least, it seems very confusing. And at the most, it seems like it's way over the top. But this is the radical way that Jesus prescribes for his followers, as they are persecuted. This isn't referring to your average lawsuit that we might hear about in our over-litigious culture. Okay, these are two different type of things. But it is an example. It is an example for the follower of Jesus who gets pushed into a corner because of their relationship with Jesus or their faith. Okay, so the next illustration, Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. You probably have heard it said this way, go the extra mile or go, go above and beyond. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, then you carry it for two miles. Now, we're probably most familiar with like, hey, go above and beyond. And, but here I want you to understand this. Understand that for Jesus' hearers, this was describing a very humiliating situation. Because whenever a Roman soldier would ask uh, someone to carry a burden for a mile... They had to stop whatever they were doing to pick up that stuff and carry it. Now, whether they were in the middle of work, whether they were having a meal with the family, whatever, whatever circumstance it was, they had to do it. No matter what your social um, status might be, you were forced to do that. And many Jews had experienced this firsthand, so they were very familiar with it. 
They were very familiar when Jesus said this. If a soldier commands you should carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. And I would imagine that their jaws were dropping it even at the mention of this. Because not only did Jesus imply to do this willingly, but to carry the burden farther than they were asked or that they were expected to. Jesus is advocating for us to have an attitude of willing cheerfulness. He was calling for an unexpected response in a situation that was despised and, and led to humiliation. He's calling for a response that would cause the Roman soldier to wonder why. Like, what? You don't have to go further. You know, it would make an impact on them. Now, author and theologian Craig Blomberg says it a little bit like this. There's revolutionary righteous people possessing revolutionary joy, even when treated unfairly, call everyone's hearts upward. Think about that, revolutionary righteous people. Revolutionary righteous people. This would be like me and you, like we, we are righteous people. We've been declared righteous by the blood of the cross. And so being revolutionary in that, we possess this revolutionary love that is not dependent on anything and revolutionary joy that comes over that even, even when we're treated unfairly, calls everyone's hearts upward. And finally, Jesus gives this example in verse 42. I kind of labeled it no strings attached. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. On the surface, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that sounds pretty good. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And so while that might not seem like a, a radical response or a radical example of not resisting the evil one, let me ask you, have you ever had someone that you knew despised you, and yet they wanted to borrow something from you? I mean, I've had people ask to borrow different things from me, and like everyone who's ever done that is like someone that I get along with, like a neighbor or a friend or a family member. But I've never had someone that I knew deeply despised who I was because of my faith in Jesus ask me for something. And so Jesus is, he's saying, no, even those people that despise you because of your faith and your relationship with me, give Now, it's good to remember that Jesus is speaking to his followers here about being wronged because of their relationship to him. That's what all this is. And so in each of these examples, Jesus is charting a course of action forward that that runs completely counter to the way that we might naturally think or we might naturally behave. And these should not be written as so uh, read or taken so legalistically that we mishear what Jesus is after. And he's after our hearts. These are intended to shake us up and have challenged the way that we think and the way that we respond to being insulted or wronged because of our faith. I mean, let's go back to a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. So be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus has already set this up. Hey, blessed are you when, when, those perse- when they persecute you. Blessed are, the, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So he's taking us back to how he started and 
He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. And before I go on, I want to be clear on something. I want to be clear on something. Jesus is most definitely not saying that you should just take abuse or stay in some type of an abusive relationship or to be a doormat of them because absolutely not. Absolutely, unequivocally, no. He's also not saying that you should not protect yourself, okay? Jesus himself left when, when the mobs wanted to take him out. He would slip away. Paul escaped over the wall of the city because they were going to hurt him. Nehemiah had the workers hold a shovel and a weapon in each hand just to be able to protect, uh, protect themselves and guard against what might happen. So we could spend an entire sermon chasing you know, self-defense and all those kind of things out, but, but we can't right now. But I want you to know that Jesus is not saying, he is not saying to never defend yourself. And he's not saying just to be passive in any way. Jesus was meek. But he was most definitely not a doormat. Jesus was meek, but he most definitely was not a wimp. He spoke truth in his trial. He wasn't completely silent. He laid out truth, but it was always under control. But Jesus did say his followers would be persecuted, right? He says that, like, you're going to be persecuted when you are persecuted. Now, he also didn't say, like, hey, go out and look for people to persecute you because that's what, you know, they're going to do that. No, as you live your life, you are inevitably going to have people persecute you. And I think most likely, most of the people in this room, if not all, have never really experienced that kind of persecution. When I was in India just a, a couple of months ago, I had a chance just to speak to some uh, of uh, some of the leaders there in India. And they have different, what they call anti-conversion states in India where literally you're not supposed to convert. You can't proselytize, you know, all these kind of things. And so I got to speak to a few people, and as I was, was beginning to, to speak to them, I just asked them, hey, what is your, what's your last you know, couple of months been like for you? And there were people there that had been thrown in jail because of they were preaching the gospel, people that had been ostracized or hurt in some type of way. And I felt right there, like, they're persecuted in ways that I cannot identify with. So just because someone makes fun of you because you're a Christian, that's not persecution. Jesus said that we'd be persecuted, but he did not say that we need to go around and look for it. As you live for Jesus, it will come. And so what do we do? So in light of things, uh, in light of all this, here are four things to remember when we want to retaliate, okay? When we want to get revenge, we want to retaliate, when we want to get even. And the first one is simply this. Trust God with making things right. I know it sounds like, well, that's just, how do you do that? I mean, like, just trust, trust God with being right? Do you not get upset about it? Do you not, you know, do different things? Well, no, I don't think it's that way. But you have to trust that a sovereign God is still sovereign and that he will carry out his justice and his judgment in due time. I mean, look what Romans chapter 12 says. He says, uh, Paul says this, he repay no one evil for evil. Remember, Paul, this is the guy who gets beaten and struck and all kinds of persecution. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
Be thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So trust that God's got it in control. He's got it handled. He has not turned his back on when something wrong has happened to you. He hasn't turned away. And he does have a long memory, and he will remember. So we don't have to be concerned with with things not being fair. In fact, Christians should rejoice that this world is not fair. Because if it was fair, all that we would deserve would would to be able to take God's judgment and his wrath upon us because there was nothing more that we could do. But in the not fairness, God has actually sent a substitute in Jesus to live and to die and to shed blood for us. That's not fair. Fair would mean that we would face the just punishment and the wrath that we deserve from God for our sin. But because of Jesus, because of the cross, we don't have to. The second thing to remember is this. Remember that this world isn't home. Remember this world isn't home. The world that we live in is, is broken. This isn't home. First Peter chapter 2 says this. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. Like he's talking about those of you that you're, you're exiled here, but he also is like if you're alienated from everything, like you are on your own, to abstain from simple desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when, not if, when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Peter reminds us, hey, we're, we're strangers and exiles, and this is not our eternal home. Live as Jesus calls us to live in his kingdom, and other people will take notice, and they will observe, and they will glorify God because of the way that you live. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, think about that. I mean, we know that, like, our country has ambassadors in every other country, and the role of an ambassador is to represent the interests of the country that they are an ambassador from. And so when, when Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ, what he's saying is, like, this isn't your home, but you're going to be an ambassador for the heavenly home that you have for other people. Like, you are an ambassador for Christ. It's your job, your role to present Christ and the best interests of the kingdom to other people. And you're never an ambassador to your own country. There's not a United States ambassador to the United States. Because we know that this place is not our eternal home and that we are temporary residents, by calling us ambassadors for Christ, Paul says we're already citizens of heaven. That's our home. And we get the opportunity and the incredible gift and responsibility to represent Christ in this world and how we live. The next one, realize that you don't have to have the last word. You know those people, like you'll be having a conversation, you think it's over, but then they just kind of want to say one more thing so that they feel like they came out on top? Remember and realize that you don't have to have the last word. Look at James chapter 1. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness.
If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Can I be honest and completely transparent with you? I'm not, attempt to, I'm not attempting to scold you and I'm not attempted, um, and I sure don't want to come across as unloving in any way. But this is probably the area that almost all of us, almost all of us can practice on. What about your social media platform? It deeply troubles me to see Christ followers attacking Christ followers because they don't see eye to eye on things that are so temporary. And when is the last time that your pointed remark or the comments that you left just oozed love out of it? When was the last time that that happened? And in my opinion, and this is strictly you know, my opinion, if social media was used by Christians to lift up and encourage other people instead of taking a stand on a social issue or making an unloving comment towards someone, we might actually cause people in the world that don't know Jesus to begin to recognize his characteristics and his love. God does not need us to defend him. He is a big God, and he's not waiting like, hey, would you please give me a little support here? I could use it. No, God's a big God, and he's a sovereign God, and he does rule and reign. So you and I don't have to be concerned with having the last word. We, we don't. Instead, be determined to outdo one another in doing good. And the last thing to remember is a quote from Martin Luther King. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Hate and retaliation only lead to more hate and retaliation. Hate and retaliation will never point to Jesus. They just reveal our sinful and selfish desires. Love, though, love is a radical and redemptive power. It was the love of Christ that transformed you and me and moved us from being enemies of God to now friends with God. That's the kind of love that transforms and transcends. And so understand that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So if anything, if anything at all is clear today, let it be this, that none of what Jesus is calling us to is remotely possible without him. Nothing that he is calling us to is remotely possible without him. Because of Jesus' example of going to the cross when he, was, when he was humbled and when he was beaten and when he was spit on, and later when he was whipped with the whips ripping the flesh off of his back, and when he was on a cross bleeding out, he at any point in time could have had everything turn around and, and wiped everybody out. But no, he modeled what it's like to stand up in a powerful way by not going back after his accusers. So because, because he did that and because uh, of his example and how he was unwavering and how he was relentless in his passionate love for you and for me and because 
on the middle cross, he said that when we say that we are following him, he lets us in and we are his. We have, we have the ability, we have the power because the Holy Spirit lives in us to live the countercultural life in the kingdom that God is calling us to. We can do this, not on our own power, but because the Spirit lives in us. We have the ability, Christ willing, to love and live in the kingdom of God, like he is calling us to love and live. Would you pray with me? Lord, I have to confess, these, these, these statements of Jesus and the teachings are really hard. I know in my own life, I don't want anyone to get the better of me. I know that sometimes my, my anger will overflow and lead to a wrong response that mars your name. But Father, we, we really do, I believe, want to be kingdom people. And we want to have characteristics that remind other people of who you are. And we want to make certain moral choices that show that we are kingdom people. And we want to do the best that we can in the power of the Spirit to live that out. Not because we get more love for you, from you, but because we're proving to the world how loved and passionate that you pursue us. We want other people to join. So, Father, as we leave here today, I pray, Lord, that we would just take some time to reflect on this passage that is probably very familiar. And what does it mean for me today? And the relationships that I have, the social media that I have, and the comments that I, may, I might make about something political or cultural in the world that others don't agree with me on. Father, help us to understand that you really are still in control. And give us the power to live that out in Christ's name. Amen.